Welcome back, friends, to the Mark Claire Show. That's right. I'm back, baby. Doing interviews again. Back on the saddle. Back on the wagon. I don't know. I'm back on something. Uh, but to have the energy to be back, I needed my friend Stephen Fox and his company, Fox and Sons. Been a sponsor of the show from the beginning. I want you to head over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Grab yourself a bag or two or three, whatever it may be. You're going to get 18% off your order. 18%. Beat that. I challenge you. You're not going to. Because that's an exclusive MCS offer. 80% off your order by using discount code MCS over at foxandsons.com. If you drink coffee, if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate you at least checking out our sponsors, Stephen Fox and Fox and Sons Coffee. Trust me, you are not going to regret this decision. If you are a coffee lover, buy yourself one bag. Help the show. Help yourself. Help a fan of the show. Help a sponsor of the show. It's good stuff for everybody. With that being said, it is now time for my conversation with Mark Cengizi. My guest today is a cognitive scientist, entrepreneur, and author. In his work as a theorist, he aims to grasp the ultimate foundations underlying why we think, feel, and see. Please welcome Mark Cengizi. Mark, welcome to my show. Uh, great to be here. Well, great to speak to you uh, again, Mark. I spoke to you several years ago on Lions of Liberty, kind of in the midst of, uh, I guess, what you might call, call the, uh, well, still kind of be safe because we'll be on YouTube, the Koovy-Woovy uh, hysteria, if you will. But you, as we were talking about before the show, you, just like myself, are, uh, are now a Florida man as well. You recently moved to Miami. So why don't we just start right there? I'm kind of curious why, yeah, I have some ideas, but I'm kind of curious why you decided to move down to Florida. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's certainly not 100% because of COVID, but, uh, you know, there's, I do have business colleagues. My wife is an artist, and so she is more opportunities for her. But really, what pushed us over the edge uh, was it was one of the free states, or at least it quickly became one of the free states once sort of DeSantis woke up. Uh, he wasn't perfect uh, by any means for the first eight months or so, but he seems to have really uh, figured things out, uh, understood that he you know wasn't doing the right thing, and has really gone the extra mile uh, to ensure that interventions like that uh, don't happen again, at least under his watch. So yeah, really I mean, I, I think DeSantis either has to have become a true believer against this stuff, or he's just become that good at, at deciding there's a particular base that just really feels strongly about this, and I'm going to lean all the way into it. Either way, it's pretty much the same result, so I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Trump, on the other hand, still seems to not recognize fully the mistakes that were made, and he could, you know, it's, I'm not saying they're all his fault, but at the end, he was the president of the time, and it would be uh, much better if he realized, and it said out loud, look, we, we did a lot of uh, things on retrospect which were terrible, and we're going to ensure that those sorts of things don't happen again. Lots of things he could say, and it's the kind of, you know, in fact, it's more his personality to do that. Historically, he would suddenly change on a dime and say, I don't think that was right. He, he sometimes has a personality that's willing to do that, but for some reason, he hasn't been able to do that uh, for COVID. Sure, and it's, a, it's an odd line of attack that he's gone after. Not that we're going to do a whole show about politics, but hey, this no. goes where it goes. Uh, it's an odd line of attack he's taken against, so I guess maybe it's never odd for Trump, but uh, against DeSantis going after him for his COVID response uh, at a time when, if anything, you could just say DeSantis was just kind of doing what you said to do for a few weeks and then and then flipped on the dime about it. About it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, I'm also curious, you know, Mark, you are a scientist uh, by trade, by profession, and I, I'm curious if... Uh, the term scientist has been sullied for you over the last couple of years. Do you, do you have to sort of bat your eyes a little bit at using that term? Yeah, I mean, it's been an embarrassment. The science, you know, we, we all make fun of uh, the cap, capital T, capital S, little trademark afterwards. 
Uh, and, you know, as a scientist, being browbeaten by thousands and thousands of, of uh, lockdowners who would inform me that they're just working with the science and who am I to possibly be arguing against their views because they're with the science. And these are all, of course, all non-scientists. Not that I, you know, and I never browbeat people that I'm a scientist, yet they're browbeating beating me about the science and they're not even scientists. It just doesn't even make any sense. And so right. it, was, it's an, it was a very infuriating time. And it, it, it is a, a, a stain on academia and on public intellectuals and on, you know, many, many classes, public policy folks, politicians, journalists. It's a really a stain uh, amongst uh, the scientific world that so few stood up. Um, what percentage of them were uh, actively agitating for the lockdowns, interventions, and so forth, and were you know truly in the righteous cult versus were just kept their head down because they want to make sure they can get their next grant when they have to apply. It's it's unsure and it, and it blends into one another often, you know, so that you're not really quite sure. But uh, so few stood up at all. Uh, you know, I don't know, a fraction of a percent stood up. I stood up. I hope that I would have stood up. Uh, you know, I was always a libertarian, little L libertarian when I was in proper academia as a professor, you know. Uh, but it certainly helped that I've left academia 12 years ago to start my own research institute, to have my own companies, buy my intellectual freedom, because I was always worried about groupthink and the pressure that comes from all of these. As a theorist, I move from field to field, and I need to be intellectually aloof to be able to do so. And, and I think that also helped me be intellectually aloof during this so that I didn't feel the pressures of, well, I'm never going to get, you know, a grant ever or even publish ever again if I stand up. And of course, that doesn't just mean that you sit there going, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I really believe in what these other, you know, anti-lockdowners are saying. But no, it actually bleeds into the very thoughts and beliefs that you have. And you'll come to convince yourself and you're surrounded by all of those folks, you'll come to, come to convince yourself that we have to lock down. It's wrong to not do that. It's wrong to be a denier. It's wrong to be an anti-vaxxer. All of it, you, you know, it, it pervades. It bleeds into one another. That's an interesting perspective because, you know, you could, because you had established your independence, your financial independence, your professional independence away from uh, the system, so to speak, you were already in a position where you were, free to speak your mind or, or you, you didn't feel necessarily restrained to uh, cater to certain beliefs. Whereas if you were in the system, like you said, you might, you might hold the same beliefs on, you know, maybe the intellectual level, but because of the maybe financial incentives, it is not necessarily, at least the way you put it, the way I take it, it's not necessarily that you might, that someone might actively say, Oh, I'm, I need to change my beliefs to keep this job. It's that you're, you will gradually just change the beliefs based on the surroundings that you have and, and the incentives in place. Do I, do I kind of have that right? Yeah, you don't want to, uh, your story for your own life doesn't want to be, I kept my mouth shut when there was medical tyranny in order to keep my job. Your narrative for your personal life wants to be that I was working towards the good and I'm connected to all these bright, brilliant people in academia. And uh, it's, again, you're not saying this either internally, but it'll end up being kind of pushing your your narratives will be pushing towards or incentivized to be pushed towards stories that make you look good. They're not going to, you know, be pushing or being selected for stories that make you look like a douchebag, right? right. Uh, and unless you're a psychopath, you you kind of can't make yourself the villain in your own story. You have to right. always tell yourself that you're at least trying to do the right thing, even if you're making mistakes along the way. Right, right. Now I do know. Yeah, there were some graduate students. We, you know, I didn't. I don't tend, tend to publish in, you know, in COVID-related things. But we had one publication on 
sort of masks and things around masks, and we had a, you had some postdocs that uh, their, you know, the, the, their advisors and, and their head to, heads of department told them, do not publish anything on COVID. You should just not do it. You're not allowed to do it. And so it, it was just straight out um, telling that you're, it wasn't just like, look, son, your career will be ruined if you do this. And so you really got to, you got to be practical. No, it was more like, no, don't be a bad person and publish anything that's skeptical of masks. Um, but in most cases, I think it's it's much more uh, under, under unconscious and much more dangerous, actually, in that case, because no one realizes that they're uh, joining a cult, what really is like a righteous cult. Uh, no one realizes, no one is making a decision to, uh, to do so. It just bleeds in and happens on its own through these sort of emergent forces by virtue of where you sat within the network. What, what happens on the cognitive level that causes what you mentioned earlier, where people sort of make themselves the experts on a, on a certain, certain topic because it, is it due to the fact that they've just they've put themselves in a system, whatever that system may be, where they rely on the authority of, say, a, a media figure or a politician or whatever it may be. That's sort of the system that, that they're ingrained to. Or, or what is it that makes them suddenly believe they are the experts over what really on paper, in, in, in your own case, would be an actual expert? Right. Well, it, it, it's the same reason we all believe very strongly uh, uh, on all sorts of things, right? I mean, there's, there's lots of knowledge out of whatever your expertise, undergrad or grad expertise is, where you are 110% sure, and you, you and I share that 110%, and pretty much everybody in the population does, right? And the reason we do is because varieties of independent, high-reputation people in our networks, which includes public you know, figures, it includes just Doug, who I knew in high school, but he was really bright, and and Susie, who's a friend of my mom, whatever. There's lots of, I mean, these are highly diverse, but independent uh, people who seem to be saying these things that I read in the magazine. And so we all come to believe it through all of these, but we've never gone out and done any data analysis ourselves. We believe it because enough high reputation folks in our community um, effectively told us so. 99.9% .9 of everything that we all believe comes from that, right? As a scientist, I may have more than some non-scientist things that I did myself, but that's maybe two dozen things. And then the other million things, just like your million things, are because we're believing everybody around us. So they are, are, are feeling like experts in the things that they heard from their high reputation folks, just like all of us. There's, you know, there wasn't anything ill about the way that they came to believe that they knew the science. What was ill, sick, or you know, going wrong was that the entire network had gone into a kind of a group thing, kind of mob kind of state. And it was no longer getting Indian in all of these these supposedly independent viewpoints were no longer independent. It was all basically one viewpoint bouncing. And so it, when you get six different opinions, that's a pretty good argument. When those six opinions are really one opinion, it's no longer uh, the same kind of argument. But it's still, from your point of view, you're, you're reacting like you always do, treating it as six independent opinions. Well, one subject that uh, a lot of people seem to have become convinced of maybe despite some evidence to the contrary, but and this is a subject you've spoken about a lot is the subject of masks. And when, when we first scheduled this interview, we ended up having to delay a few times. So it's not quite the same case right now, but at the time we scheduled this interview, um, I thought to bring you on because there, we were starting to see a lot of the COVID hysteria. Again, we were starting to see a lot of the headlines. We started to see a lot of little headlines here and there about 
certain like little universities, little colleges starting to bring back mask mandates and seeing yeah. little articles about numbers rising. And it felt like they were trying to bring it back. But even within that, that context, I still, and maybe this is because I used to live in Los Angeles. So in my, my social networks and whatnot, there's still a lot of that there. I, st- I still learned, saw, saw a lot of those conversations starting to spring back up again about masks and people saying the same old thing. Well, what's the big deal? Why not just put on the mask? And uh, there are many reasons, I think, both ethically and uh, and medically to not wear the mask. But maybe you can dive into that issue a little bit and take it from wherever it makes the most sense for you. Well, the reason that you shouldn't wear masks is because, Mark, it covers your fucking face, right? <laughs> and you can bleep that out, you know, appropriately. No, I, I will not do that. In fact, I prefer right. you to say it a few more times. But. <laughs> now, I mean, and I did a science moment video on it, focusing on that line, because... I think that's what really we should have said the first time, instead of pointing out the cardiovascular harms or pointing out that, you know, the RCTs uh, in the past and, and present um, all show that they don't work and all these other kinds of diverse harms that we can talk about. Um, the simplest one is, is, is something like that, that it covers your fucking face. And the reason that's such a nice phrase is that it's trying to emphasize faces are the way that we communicate with one another. Right? It's not just your, your mouth and the, and the language that we speak. The language that we truly speak, whether it's you know, on text or, or in person, are by, via emotional expressions. Even in our, the way that I'm talking now, if I suddenly get rid of my emotional expressions and just talk like zombie without any, you know, in, no one's going to listen to me. The way that I impart confidence in this parts of what I'm saying or humility, and I'm not really sure about that, these are all what emotional expressions are. And mm-hmm. we do that most of all with our faces. That's what it's about. And so when you cover over a face, which is your identity and your socio-emotional uh, uh, pathway to other people, uh, or it's the screen, it's the, you know, it's the UX screen by which all humans sort of bond with, with one another. You're cutting the main channel of communication between humans. And most of us wouldn't be able to describe it in this kind of weird cognitive computational way or whatever I said. They just know it in their bones. It's covering my fucking face. You don't just go cover people's fucking face without doing, even if you thought that they worked, and even if you didn't care about civil liberties and you're just doing utilitarian calculation, somewhere in that cost-benefit analysis has to be that it's blocking the channel by which human society in, you know, uh, relies, right? And never in these conversations, well, it's just your face and it's just covering. So, you know, so we can go through the... 35, you know, 45 different kinds of arguments against masks, which I constantly do on, you know, Science Moments channel and my Loofwired magazine and, and on Twitter. But I, you know, I, I feel like that is one of the best uh, responses of all. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, because we can get into the weeds and I, we will a little bit and, and look at some of the uh, actual sort of medical ramifications of masks. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's a better argument than than any study you can sway people with because people are not not necessarily swayed uh, by charts and graphs so much as uh, emotion. And uh, you know, look, you're covering my fucking face. I mean, what what more do we need to say about that, uh, really? When I when I think of other times in society, we cover people's faces. It's like when you take someone for an execution before they're shot by a firing squad. Squad when you kidnap them. It's never really a good circumstance typically uh, when you're attempting to cover someone's face against their will. So uh, right. that on that pure uh, human level, I think that's a much better argument. Right in the Guantanamo Bay, there was a huge in 2005 or so, something like this. Remember the Guantanamo Bay prisoners as they were entering Guantanamo Bay, these uh, suspected terrorists, they were on the ground shackled and they had masks on, and there was some bullcrap. 
you know, medical story for why they had masks on, but, but they were accused at the time, or the, the feeling was like that the, you know, United States government was basically torturing them. This is a, a milder version of torture. And so they got a lot of flack for it. The human reaction to seeing people with masks on was one of horror 15 years ago in the absence of a pandemic, which suddenly changed their minds from March of 2020 to May of 2020. Um, that masks were ridiculous and harmful and horrific to suddenly they work and everybody everywhere all the time must wear one. And it's no big deal. Yeah. Let's dive a little bit more into some of the actual medical issues that, that can occur from masks besides, besides just our straight up view fuck off this is my face uh but you know the, a lot of the work you've done and i checked out a couple of your ted, TED talks are pretty interesting stuff and there, there's some other su weirder subjects i might want to go into uh, on your work on vision later on but um just on, on the, the the level of how masks affect your vision and this is the kind of thing that um it seems obvious but you know when, when i started putting a mask on and started walking around and that sort of thing i after a few weeks, I noticed I, I was hitting my toe a lot. Like I was stubbing my toe a lot. I was hitting my, my legs a lot more than I used to. So just, and I, and I was otherwise, a, you know, a healthy, healthy man who can normally walk fine. So I can't imagine what that would do to people that might already have vision issues or might be, you know, might be elderly or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was actually the very first video that I did. I'm on, I'm on my science moment, YouTube and rumble. I'm on 400 moment number 417 or 18, something, you know, I'm approaching 420. And I had 50 or so science moments in before COVID hit and then COVID hit and I didn't like, I didn't feel like I wanted to continue the series just as it was, which was just sort of pure science, interesting stuff coming from my kind of research areas. And then finally, after a few months, I said, okay, I, if I'm going to continue this, it should be sort of related to all this interesting stuff. Cause there's so much interesting scientific stuff going on on the mass hysteria side, on the mask size and faces. There's just so many angles of, that are scientifically interesting. I'm going to focus most of the series on, the angles that are somehow relevant here, because there's so much. So the first one that came up was something no one would really focus on, is that when you cover your face, people don't really, you're not covering your eyes, that is in the sense of actually covering over your eyes. But what most people don't realize is that in, in your peripheral visual field, you see, well, more obviously, most obviously, you see your nose, right? With your right eye, you see the right side of your nose. And with your left eye, you see the left side of your nose, and together you can actually still see it if you're sort of attending to it, and you see directly through it, because whatever the nose is blocking in one eye, the other eye sees that part of the visual field and vice versa. So, but you're also able to see your eyebrows. So sometimes when you wiggle your eye, if you look straight, you wiggle your eyebrows, you'll notice that in your far periphery, the amount of visual I'm trying field- it, I'm trying it right now, I do kind of see them. All right, so try to look straight and just wait. Don't actually move your eyes up, just move, wiggle, keep your fixated toward me, and wiggle them, you still see that, they, that they, the, the boundary of your visual field is changing up there. And actually the boundary of your visual field below is actually your cheeks and even your lips. So again, try not to look, you can look down, you can might see, but even better is you look straight and you can kind of sometimes depress it. Like, um, so the very boundary is not just the, where your retina ends on your eye, the very boundary is because it actually reaches some part of your face. And the reason that you want that kind of you want to be able to, when I'm doing social, actually right now, I see my face on the screen because if I didn't, if I had the camera turned around and I couldn't get the feedback, you know, I might be off camera like this talking the whole time without that visual feedback. And in real life, when we're socio-emotionally expressing to other people, I need to have feedback about where my face is and what are my eyebrows doing? How high are they? How low? What are my, are my cheeks smiling? What are, is my face doing? You actually get, a, you actually get feedback, visual feedback on what your face is doing 
from your own eyes in your own head, which is very counterintuitive. So we're actually able to see our own face, which gives us lots of feedback on, on terms of what our own face is doing. But not only that, when you look down, without looking down, in your far peripheral visual field, when you're walking, the your legs, as they move forward and back, are part of your our visual field and your far peripheral. You're not consciously aware of these far peripheral stuff, right? So as you approach things approaching you, all of this optic flow that you rely on, the optic flow is just the streaks, you know, the things that are moving past you, like a, you know, like when you're warping on Star Trek, and they go, that's all, all the time happening in your visual field as you move forward. And that stuff is in your far lower visual field, and your peripheral visual field is seeing it, even though you're not consciously attending to it, and that helps you guide your behavior. Okay, there's a step coming. There's these things coming. I need to move this and do these kinds of things because of the relative speeds that they're coming are how you become the athletic creature that we and all animals are. But when you cover this up, you're actually covering up your ability to see almost 20 or 30 degrees down towards the ground. So that if you actually put it, not to mention some of these N95s, these bigger kinds of ones, that is blocking a significant part of your lower visual field, preventing you from seeing stuffs, preventing you from seeing your own face, preventing you from seeing the optic flow uh, uh, approaching, which tells you about the nature of the ground and how you should react to it in real time. So um, falls are a big deal. You know, every year there's millions, you know, worldwide of people that have falls, and falls that become a big deal are for older folks, 70s and up, who have, you know, because you suddenly you break a hip. Well, it's never just a hip. Then you're in the hospital, then you get a UTI, and once you get a UTI, your body starts to react and becomes weak, and then suddenly some bacteria infection starts hitting you. So often the first you know, thing that takes a person out when they're 83 years old is they had a fall. And then A, B, C, D, E, they're dead in two months, right? Falls are a big deal. So when you're asking people to wear masks and there are falls, you say, oh, it's just a fall, it's just freaking. No, falls have their own costs. This is just one cost, right, amongst the many multidimensional costs of asking healthy people to wear a functionless mask um, all day long uh, that covers their fucking face and their identities. Um, and so just as another one of these many different kinds of costs is that you have a greater chance of engage, uh, you know, having a fall. Right. Have there been any studies done that have shown actual data of in the last couple of years of like increased falling among elderly people wearing masks or anything like that? There is one, and I would have to look it up. Um, I have a thread that goes through all of it. There is one that was uh, making a case that it was showing that, you know, that historical, and there was a, a pretty reasonable discontinuity that happened coinciding with it, and it was just sort of an observational study. So better would be to have control, you know, but that, that, there is something along those lines. Uh, yes, I'd have to go look at it again. Well, you mentioned something else there in the context of masks. You use the word functionless, and there are a lot of people that will say, look, yeah, maybe there will be downsides. Yeah, maybe some, maybe it will affect some people's visions, but, but at least it will save some lives because less people will transmit the disease, this and that. So let's address the functionality then in that case, although I would agree that even if it were functional in some way, you still don't get to make me cover my fucking face. I would agree with you on that. But just to uh, entertain the arguments that you'll hear out there, um, what, 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 are, what are some of the data out there that, that about the actual functionality, at least specifically, particularly when it pertains to COVID? Well, I mean, one, one way to, there's two ways to talk about this even before getting into the newer data. Pre-COVID, it was standard uh, to not recommend masks for, uh, for viruses. 
Um, the standard RCTs at the time said masks don't slow respiratory viruses, which are spread via smoke-like aerosols. Um, so people say, oh, we've always worn masks in the medical community. No, like actually the standard advice, which is what Fauci himself said in March or February of 2020, was that no, we don't, don't wear masks. There's no reason to wear a mask, right? That Unless was I was in surgery or at the dentist, I don't think I'd ever seen a doctor wear a mask before, before, right, before two years right. ago. And, and, and then the second thing people often, well, surgeons always wear, wear masks. So, so that shows us that it works. Now, surgeons wear masks and have always worn masks to the, to the extent that they did to stop always bacterial riddled spit from landing in the wound and to stop wound goop from landing in their nose or mouth. It stops droplets. It's like, not because your surgeon is sick and doesn't want to give you a virus, because if your surgeon is sick, he's probably not doing surgery on you, I would hope anyway. Right, but, and it's not really the virus, because the, these things don't stop smoke-like aerosols, which go, well, they'll go right through for the most part, but they just disproportionately jet out all of these gaps anyway. Because unless, you know, if you have an N95, then, and it's custom fitted for your face and you've shaved perfectly well, then for maybe 15, 20 minutes, maybe half an hour, it could be relatively functional in keeping it, you know, going through the actual mask itself rather than, because even a small millimeter gap, you'll have, you know, 70 or 80% will just disproportionately go out there. It just goes with the, the path of least resistance. So for but, anybody that has a beard, does it basically does not work at all? It just doesn't work. I mean, yeah. it's still not gonna work at all because there's always these well, little yeah. gaps. Um, and, uh, but if you have a beard, it doesn't even have a chance of working. And actual studies with, with N95s worn by medical personnel versus you know, not wearing that have actually found no significant effect. So even you know, like in principle, it's the kind of thing that maybe could work for short periods of time in very you know, rare circumstances, but not for the general populace. But even then, there's no good data that in fact it works. I wanna talk some more about the actual active harmful effects of wearing masks. And there, there's a few I can think of that just on the gut level without doing any research seem to me like they'd be harmful. One of them is keeping this thing tightly strapped on your face all the time. Uh, just my own experience when I had to wear a mask a lot, uh, I would just get a lot of pain there and it'd be very uncomfortable. Now, maybe that's not a medical issue. Maybe it's just discomfort, but I imagine over time, discomfort is telling you something. So it's probably not doing something great to your body. Is there any information you have around just the physical effect of wearing that mask all the time? Yeah, well, I mean, on that note, this is actually one of my first science moments that I did after I restarted. It was like, you, we have pain for a reason. Pain is an evolved thing. Pain is good. Pain is, has, is an evolved state to say, stop doing that or you're damaging ourselves. So when you put on a mask and you have pain, either tactile pain or pain here, but more generally, you have a different kind of discomfort from just being muffled, right? Like people start to get heightened, they get annoyed, they're frustrated, they don't like to wear it, it feels like you're being suffocated. That is a kind of pain or a discomfort reaction trying to stop you from whatever it is that you're doing that's preventing from having the normal uh, pressures of breathing that, that would normally occur. You ignore that, then without any good argument otherwise, unless there's a really strong argument, you should assume that you're doing something harmful to yourself. That is, that should be, the burden of evidence is to say, you're not, in fact, harming yourself. It's not the other way around saying, well, it's just a piece of fabric, so it shouldn't be harm. No, if I'm feeling like I'm in pain, then in the absence of any good argument, I'm going to assume I'm being harmed. That is a good starting point. <clears throat> Everybody knows masks were just, you know, uncomfortable. That's why they were used for torture. 
they should be assumed to be having many or you know at least some kinds of harms and not presumed not to be. You know, the most obvious are cardiovascular harms. And in my series, I don't typically talk about, talk about that because I've tried to focus on the because there's such multidimensional harms that so many that people, so many people just aren't talking about all the other kinds of harms. They focus on the cardiovascular ones, which to me are quite obvious. And I like like let let's let them talk about it because they, they're saying it perfectly well. I want to focus on all of these other dimensions that nobody else is. But the cardiovascular ones, uh, there's a number of papers which show very clearly that in a very short period of time, when you put these on and they're snug, then you're getting high levels of CO2. You're getting changes in the partial pressures and all, all the things that your body needs to have normal regulated oxygen coming in and out at the normal rates are being uh, uh, handicapped or, or, or violated, prevented from happening, happening normally, which then changes uh, your ability to get be oxygenated and so forth. Um, skin tears is another. There was a big paper that came out just before COVID happened, actually, coincidentally, and it was talking about all the kinds of skin wounds that you end up with people, with medical personnel that have to wear it for certain periods of time. They end up with cuts and, and you know, bacterial infections in certain spots, which themselves can be points of entry for bacterial infections and so forth. So there's skin tears, there's cardiovascular issues, there's falls, um, and uh, on the more physical sides of things um, from masks not even getting into the psychological kind of social stuff. Yeah. What, what you said there about discomfort and stress. Like I, I can't tell you how many times I mean, cause there was a period where I had to go to a job and wear a mask and uh, thank God I'm not in that situation anymore. Hopefully never again where I am, but we'll see. Uh, but you know, I just, I remember so much just stress, just hating it, being upset by it, being annoyed by it, moving it, pulling it down to breathe, pulling it back up to breathe, seeing if someone's in the room. I mean, it was just, I was in a constant state of distress. Over yeah. it. And I imagine yeah. over time and time and time, that's just got to drive some people completely nuts. Thank God I, mean, I got out of the situation where I had to, I had to yeah. wear it. But. I mean, there's a whole lot of things about masks. I've had, I did a, a movie called Face Masks, the movie. So if you go to my YouTube channel and just search on Mark Changizi or Face Masks, the movie, you can find uh, a movie, which is kind of a compilation in many chapters on the different categories of kinds of harms and psychosocial issues or, you know, what happens for people who are hard of hearing. Um, so there's all of these different kinds of things. But one interesting thing about masks is that as um, when populace is is forced to wear them, um, you end up people want like suppose you're entering into a situation and you're not sure whether to wear the ribbon or not wear the ribbon concerning Ukraine or something like that, right? <laughs> Then you know that reminds me of the Puerto thinking, Rican Day Parade on Seinfeld. I don't know if you ever saw. Yeah, that. that's right. So that, you know that kind of wear the ribbon or not wear the ribbon is a, is an interesting thing. But in this case, the ribbon of, is you know the virtue signal. The thing that evolved to be culturally evolved over time from March to May, masks became the membership signal for those who really cared and they cared more than you about the society and so forth. And so people that wore the mask showed I'm I'm a carer. And I'm better than you. And then it became once that happens, once a membership signal sort of becomes a it shows reliable, it's a reliable signal of being a member of a particular righteous community. Then stories start to evolve and justifications evolve for why it's not just a membership signal, but it's itself virtuous. It's not just showing that you're virtuous, but it itself is virtuous. It's itself good and helpful, and, and, and you know, and so forth. These are the kinds of things that typically happen over time. So the interesting thing about masks is that. It's not quite a virtue signal in the following sense. When I put a mask on, well, in order to virtue signal, I have to say, here, I'm wearing this particular signal, and it's me wearing it. And mm, as soon as you put a right, virtue right. signal, no one knows who you are. 
you're actually, it's, it's canceling your identity. So if you're thinking to yourself, so I'm about to go to Costco or someplace where people could recognize me and I could either wear the signal or not wear the signal. I don't know what to do. No matter what, they're going to see who I am. And I don't want to be wearing the signal and look like a pussy just because you know, they, other people know I'm not part of that community. Just, but for masks, it's easy. So I don't, want to, I don't want to stick my neck out. So I'm just going to wear the signal. And then I'm not even wearing the signal. I'm just one of the many mannequins moving throughout the store. And no one can ever peg me as being a sheep because I was never signaling um, membership in that community because I wasn't even there, right? In some, in some ways, gone. it's a, yeah, it's kind of like the inversion of a virtue signal in a way where you're not saying, look at me, here I am, I'm Mark and I'm virtuous. You're, you're anonymizing yourself and blending into uh, the flock, as you might say. You're, right, you're right. not standing out. You're, not, you're specifically pointing out that you are not an individual. That's right. Now, the only cases where masks are definitely a virtue signal, you know, a good paradigm case is if your Twitter profile shows you yes. masked or when you're at a small enough party where everybody knows who the heck everybody is just because they're, you know, small, then and you're still wearing it or showing that you were wearing it, whatever. People can still manage to do regular old virtue signals where they know who the person is wearing. But for the most part, it has this weird mathematical property that it fails to be a virtue signal once you put it on. And that extremely biases its spread, right? Because suddenly there's a huge bias for people to wear it rather than not wear it uh, because it anonymizes you. And then this favors uh, those who are in the righteous community of masks, right? Because suddenly it seems like it's spread everywhere. You can have only 10% of a whole community, but once that kind of signal, that kind of virtue signal spreads, one that's sort of this not really a virtue signal, well, this is a dangerous thing because... It can suddenly seem like 99% of the population is on their side when it might only be 10% or 30% or 3%. Hard to know, right? That was sort of an interesting click that I had had a couple years ago. I was like, wow, it's not even a virtue signal. It's something weird and different. Sort of, it negates itself as soon as you put it on. In this right. It, it's like a it's like a, a blending of yourself into into the hive of sorts. I'm curious, like, what what are your thoughts on why, or if it's just the way that if it's because people are more packed in together, so this kind of mind virus type thing can spread faster why for like for example i mean this is true in the united states cities i mean you go into any small town in the height of covid uh, maybe not any small town but you know a lot of rural areas and even if they were 20 30 miles from a major city you don't see a single mask you go to that major city 30 miles away almost everyone's masked and and some in some cases there were mandates in certain cities so that might be you know you might, might blame it on that but in other in other cases there's just no difference in the laws it's simply the people in the cities were largely masked and the people out in smaller towns are largely not uh is there something on a cognitive level level of the way the, the brain functions in being in a more condensed area that that kind of causes that sort of I guess non-virtual signal to spread so rapidly. Well, I mean, I, 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 there could be more than one factor here, but the simplest factor that would explain that is that most of the cities, I mean, it quickly, from March where I would say there was not much of a political polarization to it, my first colleagues that I found that were anti-lockdown in March, because we were all alone, right? I didn't know you, and you didn't know me, and there was, a, there was I don't know what it was, whether it was 3% of the population or 30% of the population, but we didn't know each other. There was no team reality group. Some of the first people I found were capital C communists on Twitter who, you know, they're just, they're just like, this is crazy. You can't freeze an economy because they've got a, a real, you know, it's constantly on their mind that they're accused of never being able to run an economy, right, which they ne never can. So it's on their, it's, they, were, they were screaming against, you can't go lock down economy. So there was, and, and so everybody on the left and the right and all the libertarians I knew were like, oh, my God, this is so dangerous. You've got to lock down and heck with civil liberties. But 
after about a month or two, things changed. A lot of the um, typical left-right polar polarization kind of people on the right then suddenly sort of swathed over to anti-lockdown and the people on the left swathed towards the righteous COVID cult, zero COVID. And that happened by April, April or March. And by that, you know, that's enough to then to explain why the cities are disproportionately wearing masks. Once it became polarized that the left um, was part of the righteous zero COVID cult and the right then sort of polarized to anti-lockdown, well, then that's enough that that's all that you need to explain why the cities were wearing masks, even though they didn't even have mandates, um, just because it became part of the cultural identity of that group to wear masks to show that you're better than the other people. Uh, go, going back to some of the effects of the masses, another one that I certainly noticed, and, and maybe more so because I spent a lot of the uh, early COVID months uh, in Mexico. Uh, of course, as you might imagine, Spanish is not my first language, but I can get by. Typically, I can, you know, I can do normal things, go to the supermarket, take a taxi, have a casual conversation. Um, but and the reason we were in Mexico, what well, part of the reason is because there wasn't so much in, in a, the particular town we were in. There wasn't so much of that hysteria. So for a lot of the time, I didn't need to wear a mask, but on occasion. I'd have to go into a major grocery store and I would have to wear one. And I found like maybe my Spanish comprehension normally is at 70%. It dropped to like 10%. Like I, for, right. just because of how much I, I was realizing, like how much of my understanding of the language and the communication uh, was, was through the visual was, was just reading lips kind of, you don't even realize that you're actually doing it. So, and that, that makes me think like, yeah, maybe for me, you know, I'm a grown adult. I can just, okay, I'm a little confused and I move on and I, I, I deal with it, but I can't imagine for children who are you learning language for the first time, how that could be affecting their development of language and what might that do to their communication issues uh, going forward or let alone their own uh, social issues they might have just from lockdowns and that sort of thing. But even just on the subject of the masks, uh, maybe you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, we can all get by at, at a bazaar and some faraway, you know, culture doing negotiations for hog plums or whatever it might be, right? And we do that without even knowing anything uh, on the basis of just showing our regular emotional expressions. So you were certainly getting by in part, maybe uh, it turns out by seeing their lips. And now you realize you can't see the lips, but it's much more than that. You're getting by because you're seeing their emotional expressions and that's helping disambiguate what word they're saying because they're speaking so fast. They're speaking Spanish super fast, right? Like, but you buy, then you're like, okay, because their face is saying this, that word that they probably said was that rather than these 17 other things, you're not really sure. Uh, you'd right. never be able to understand it if it was just an audio recording, right? But by having all these emotional signals, it helps you understand. By covering that over, you as a second language speaker, uh, all second language speakers uh, were severely handicapped during this uh, when there's wearing masks. All children, and as they learn words for the first time, you're learning it in conjunction. You're never learning it from audio recordings. You're learning it from seeing real faces in real time, have certain emotional expressions, corresponding and being highly associated with certain kinds of words. This is what it means to learn language. It's not learning an, an abstract grammar like we study in you know, theoretical computer science. It's about learning words and how they connect, connect up to certain kinds of emotional expressions and emotional import, which import certain kinds of things. And that's ultimately what, what, what we're doing when we're having language. They're missing out on that. And of course, the hard of hearing, whether you're actually deaf or hard of hearing, um, we're severely handicapped the whole time, not only because it's harder to hear you because you have a mask, but it's even harder for me to hear you when I have a mask. One, the straps are pulling my, you know, my ears back and I can actually barely, you know, it's harder to hear when you're 
when you're squeezing the back of your ears a little bit, depending on which kind of mechanism you're holding it together. When you have things around your face, you're changing the nature of the way sound waves come to your ears. Sound waves, they hit your face in a particular way that you've, that you've learned over your lifetime and evolved to handle that and handle the disparate directions from which, you know, how do you tell whether something is in front of you versus above you versus behind you? Like, you know, like left, oh, my left ear will be louder than my right ear and it's on my right. But if it's directly in front of you versus directly behind you, it's, it's the same signal coming, signal strength coming from the left and right. The way that we do that is as it moves around, you get differential um, because of the way it goes through your skull, then from, from the front to the, my right from the, versus the back from my right, they're, they're asymmetric because the back of my ear is not looking like the front of my ear and the back of my head is not the same as the front of my head. We end up with being able to tell whether things that are in front of me or on top of me or behind me. But if you suddenly put some new kind of part of your head, which you didn't have any experience with, you're going to be less able to identify the directions from which things are going. Uh, so you're actually handicapped auditorially, um, even by wearing it, not just by um, having it the fact that other people are wearing it. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even imagine for, for, for deaf people, I mean, they... they they almost all of their communication is, is based yeah, on... Yeah, as if their lives didn't... They, I mean, these people are generally cut off, right? Very few of them can be can read lips like we see in certain movies where they're, like, totally cool reading lips all the time. No, it's not like... They're they're shut out, right? And they have to find their own communities, and they're, they're pretty much shut out completely, and we really fucked them over. Really. They were just completely... They couldn't communicate in society anymore. And it was... A, no one cares. No one cared at all. Well, pretty amazing. I mean, especially coming from uh, largely from the left, I would say, who's mostly, you know, the least uh, virtue signal you could say about uh, the disenfranchised and whatnot. I mean, what's a more disenfranchised person than a, a deaf person who suddenly has their, their primary means of communication to the world? But Mark, they're alive now. Well, they that's didn't true. Get COVID that's, and die. That's true. That's but, true. We, ha we have that. We have that to thank. Um, I, I wonder if you could speak. Further, this isn't really about masks, but it is something I think about a lot, especially having a teenage son here who who lived through a number of years of the COVID stuff. And I, I'm curious what the effect is on not just the masking between children, although I imagine that affects their social interactions quite a bit, but uh, in certain places too, which is a reason we're not in one of those places anymore. I mean, there are places where, forget the laws, there are places where parents simply wouldn't let their kids see other kids for, for years. And I, I, I wonder what kind of effect that has on the ability of children, no matter if they're very young or maybe approaching teenage years, just having a two, three year gap without actually physically interacting with other kids, what that does to their social development. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the same thing happened for my, my son. Yeah, I mean, now, in this generation's defense, they already had gone down the rabbit hole of all sitting and communicating online and about playing video games. It seems like even before COVID had happened, like maybe that's the scary part is how comfortable so many of them were with it immediately yeah. because because of I what mean, you said right i guess the only good thing about this is that when i was a kid we played a lot of video games in the 80s but you and, and you were socializing next to your friends who might, you might be playing or right. playing you didn't by have yourself. it online they had to come over to play they had to come over here they at least because then there was a while where you were playing online video games but you weren't like socializing while you were playing but that they seem to be in this world where they they all purposely get on, and they've got, they all know what their characters look like, and they all are cooperating or competing against one another, and they're just talking crap for hours and just being having fun. So it's a, it's a weird kind of socialization, but it really is a kind of socialization. It's not as good as if they were hanging out with each other. But uh, certainly, yeah, a lot of my son's friends um, weren't allowed to go over to anybody's houses for at least a year and a half. And uh, 
it seemed to shape the the largest part of of my son's high school was really ending up shaped like that because even though they did spend a lot of time playing these games especially at night once parents were in bed they at least did used to go over to other people's houses and they did all these other kinds of things and that kind of just twiddled away and once COVID happened they got into these new routines and they never really broke out of it you know i one thing I've been thinking about, especially as a few weeks ago, when it did seem like, seem like they were trying to ramp up the COVID stuff again, is I think about how, I mean, it seems, let's see, it's September 2023 now. I would say around April or May of 2022 is when they started to wind COVID down, however you want to say it, or, or it started to wind down. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. I, I mean, this gets into a little bit of potential maybe conspiracy talk, but I, I'm curious how how much you think the winding up and the winding down comes from the top, comes from a concerted effort by whoever it may be who, who might benefit from this sort of thing, tries to push that, or how much of that winding down kind of happened naturally, happened through just the process of people going through the world and slowly realizing everyone I know isn't dying. Um, I've now met like hundreds of people that had COVID and are fine. Like how much of that just happened naturally? I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on, on how it winds down and how it could potentially wind back up again. I think most of this is is done is by emergent large scale processes and and right now even this last summer um, there's there was definitely top down forces. Uh, I'm not saying that they were twiddling their mustaches saying oh I'd like to have another thing because it will bring me more money. No, they're, they're, these are part of the righteous COVID zero zero COVID cult and they were thinking to themselves let, uh, you know it's let's it's it's so important that we have masks again and, and you're really killing people if you're not because and they they still buy into this stuff. But their numbers are smaller. You know, a lot of these hardcore people have kind of calmed down. They don't really care anymore. They uh, and the number of people who are against it has grown massively. I would love for them to freaking try to do this because it is not going to be a small minority. It is going to be a riot. It's going to be a revolution if they try this. Um, it, it is a completely different animal. The body of people that are against these interventions is not what it was in um, in in 2020. It's completely different. And um, so I don't think that any amount of any amount of top down influence, any amount of propaganda that, you know, the Biden administration would try to do, it's not going to have any effect. The populace isn't listening at this point to it. And um, they're just going to ignore it or really get angry if they try. And I would love them to try. Do you think that is the case? simply with COVID specifically, if they try to ramp up COVID? Or do you think that's the case if they try, quote unquote, this again, but maybe in a more uh, hardcore way? Maybe it's a much scarier thing than COVID. Do you think the same sort of thing can happen again uh, if it's maybe not the same exact? That's a good question. Like, it's certainly the case that it could happen uh, about something completely different, you know, like climate change is potentially one thing we could solve. So, for example, you know, I come from, I mean, I'm happy Iranian. My wife is Iranian. My dad came from Iran. And, you know, the, the Iranians went through a moral panic of their own, right? The, the Islamic Revolution was a kind of moral panic. And suddenly the entire populace, you know, be, sort of started to beat as one says, so, suddenly women on the streets, women in, you know, universities, they're dressing westernized and gorgeous. And then two years later, they're all with, you know, um, not just headscarves, but, you know, shador, right? And, and it was almost impossible to go out. Now over 25 years... Slowly in the cities, you can go out with headscarves that are a little bit kind of better than the shadors and stuff. Um, but these people went through a moral panic, a kind of mass hysteria, a new righteous cult, which became that everybody in the street was enforcing it bottom up and top down and left, right, right? They come to America, 
And the question is, did they have a better ability to see the similar kinds of, of, of collective hysteria, but with completely different icing? And the answer is no, right? They didn't see it. But in both Iran, they have all of the hallmarks of collective hysteria during COVID. All the Iranians in America, where you might expect to see a better example, people that kind of learned and didn't like and came here. No, I, I saw no differences whatsoever in, in the Iranian community. You know, they, they had vax passes to go to poetry reading, because poetry is a big deal in Persian culture. You know, and so they, they were all of the stereotype uh, lockdowner fascist kind of behavior uh, was occurring in their communities as it was everywhere. So, I, but I don't think it's going to happen by virtue of a pandemic. Um, there's a half or more of the population or a sufficient minority at least, um, which will cause all kinds of havoc if they were to try that again. There's just not, there's not an appetite for it. Do, do you think people largely awakened just because of like is it because of the reality around them or is it because they for whatever reason like the propaganda the levers started to sort of hold up and that this was just not a sustainable thing to keep going forever or do you think it was really it is really just people looking around and, and seeing like like i said all my friends and family aren't dead all of them have had covid is it is it simply just an awakening in that sense of the reality around them? well i mean some of it can be an awakening of of just seeing that hearing about the data that interventions didn't work, masks didn't work, I'm not really convinced that much of the population really has even been paying attention to any of those actual studies. Um, mm -hmm. They're just living their lives. I think probably most of the explanation is just simply having a feeling now that there's a lot of people, they, you know, a lot of these people were sheep. There was at least six, there's a lot of, huge amount of the population wasn't one of these Eric Ding screaming about, you know, righteous go. But they thought, well, I'm going to just sort of keep my head down, and I guess I'm doing good for the world by keeping my head down, whether it's 30% of the population like this or 60%, I don't know. But now most of these people are slowly realizing, oh, you're on my side too? Oh, okay, I didn't know that you were like one of the people that would... And then they're slowly finding there's a huge, massive, huge numbers of people that are all actually on the same side, but all were keeping their mouths shut. And that kind of hidden minority behind the masks keeps them, can stay hidden for long periods of time, but it takes over, over the course of multiple years people talking and they slowly then they have some confidence and they say hey actually i was against it the whole time oh, i was against it too like and then it gets louder and louder and the whole mob in some sense a counter mob has now gotten loud enough i think that uh then more people join it and so it's often just uh looking to see that they can be parts can say things strongly because there's a, a sufficiently large uh a strong crowd behind them and so i think that that crowd is now there and more and more people are coming out and realizing that they're just part of it. So it's almost just a numbers game and people and, 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 and being able to see or, or detect that there's enough like them that they're willing to stand up. So is it, is it kind of because from the, in the beginning, you know, all the information you're getting about this stuff, all, all everything you're getting, it's from, it's pretty much directly from the media. It's directly from politicians. It's what's being blasted to you, even on the internet, in every single way. So that's that's all the information you're getting is just this negative pumping into it of, and because they locked everyone down uh, and they kept everyone apart, you, you don't have that same maybe social interaction in the beginning where you're starting to have these conversations and maybe, maybe the people that are, because I, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but I, I know there's like a certain percentage of the population there, maybe it's 60% or 70% who are just, generally not going to be the movers and shakers they're the ones that are just going to kind of say okay here's the new rule here's the thing we have to do we go along to get along maybe they don't like masks maybe they think the rules are stupid but this is life and they go along with it only when they realize that 
their maybe subtle skepticism, their slight skepticism or cynicism of what's going on is actually supported by more and more people. And now maybe they have three friends that are against it, five friends that are against it. Then they say, oh, Oh, I can. This is okay. It's actually okay to be against this, and that, that's what makes it sort of hard to come back. Hard to bring. Yeah, back. I think it's 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 that latter to me. Times, of course, millions. It, it happens simultaneously in a decentralized fashion. That is is ultimately why it feels very different. Cross our fingers if they were to try something again. Try and again. I, I don't always think this is. It's not that there's some mustache twiddling people that are never going to try it again. It was, it's these forces of you know, like a million people playing Ouija board. You know, and some people are. The, the people who really believe that co zero COVID should always happen, we're killing people, they're, they're pushing it to do this, and they're just like marketing firms and Nike and all these firms, you know, Apple are doing, sending out ads and hoping that they go viral. So are the people who believe that COVID is still disproportionately dangerous and we should change. They're still there trying, but this is just not a market to care about that anymore because we've seen how wrong they are and people have found that there's so many people that are skeptical like they might have been uh, the whole time. One more thing I want to ask you about before we wind down the main show here is, uh, you know, I, I think that there's there might be a lot of people listening who did buy. I mean, I think most people, even even me to some extent in the beginning was like, oh, what's the NBA shutting down? There must be something crazy going on. You know, so I think we all buy it to some extent uh, in the beginning. And but, you know, I think at this point, there's probably a good amount of people that might that look back. And especially if they're listening to this show at this stage that that look back and if to whatever extent they believe it before, they, they probably are in a somewhat different place at this point. But what I'm wondering your thoughts on are how what we can learn in terms of not necessarily the specifics of this thing, this iteration of a mass hysteria, but how to spot another mass hysteria, how we can uh, be ready to sniff it out, what kind of signs we can look for if uh, they quote unquote try this again or it happens again, however you want to look at it with something like you said, they might try it with climate change, for example. How, how can we sniff out this kind of thing and, and maybe not buy so much into it in the beginning if we can, if we can avoid it? Well, I mean, one, one general simple kind of strategy is to try to remain aloof in life, really try to um, not watch, uh, not not be part of the left or right, not feel like you're a partisan and, and a member of a of a of a particular socio-political righteous community. Once you've done that, you've kind of sold off your ability to independently think. Always try to remain aloof in that sense of that you're in, looking for truly independent sources. Um, another way to insulate ourselves from these kinds of forces, because no matter how much we might try, it's going to happen again because this is the nature of, of, of human societies. And at FreeX, I'm trying to look at sort of more clever ideas to how you can stop these flows without using authoritarian means at my free expression institute. But it's just to push the moral, and to me one of the biggest morals of the COVID debacle and is is that civil liberties are especially for the perceived emergencies, right? That's why we have civil liberties. You don't need deliberate right today. No one's freaking out about anything. The civil liberties aren't for today because no one's trying to take my civil liberties today, and no one's trying to bother you today and tell you what to do and what to wear and where to go and how many people can be at your house and what kind of medication you have to inject in yourself. On a normal day, no one's doing that. Civil liberties are for the moments when there's an emergency and suddenly everybody around you is saying, "You, Mark, have to do this for the good and that for the good, and if you don't do it, do it." You're evil, you have to go to prison or we'll fine you or whatever. Those are the points in life when suddenly civil liberties matter. So people's intuition that, oh, well, we have civil liberties, but we have to balance them with, with emergencies. No, civil liberties are for the emergencies, right? right. It's only for the emergencies. And in fact, um, the greatest emergencies of all are when governments violate civil liberties in mass. 
There is no greater emergency. The greatest democides and genocides and crimes against humanity have occurred because of the violations of civil liberties. It's exactly those things that are much more dangerous than hurricanes and pandemics and tornadoes and all of this stuff, tidal waves. No, it's humans killing other humans or, or violating and harming other humans for their good intent because they're trying to save everybody from some emergency. And those emergencies come in, whether it's climate change or a pandemic or male libido and, you know, Islamic culture and you've got whatever it might be, there's always, you know, or, you know capitalism and, and cultural revolution in China, you know, where all of these things are emergencies and they truly, genuinely believe they're emergencies and they believe they're righteously good to violate civil liberties to save everybody. And it's, you have to turn it on its head. No, that's exactly now when civil liberties matter. It's exactly now when free expression matters. Um, is, and, and so that's one of the things that I think is most important to walk away with is to never allow emergencies um, to violate civil liberties. And in fact, it, it's a mistake to think that civil liberties should be balanced. Uh, here's an example. You have a house, you bought the house, there's no interesting backyard stuff in it. And you have to start making decisions about, okay, I'd like to put a deck and I'd like to have a pool and I'd like to have a yard space to you know, throw Frisbees and kick a soccer ball. And you have to do a lot of cost-benefit analyses in terms of how big the deck is going to be because that cuts into the all, you know, there's a lot of cost-benefit analyses you have to do. But you know what you don't do in that cost-benefit analyses is balance how big your backyard is. Those lines, the fence line is your property. That's it. That's a constraint. It is a fixed constraint on your cost-benefit analyses. Your utilitarianism is constrained in your backyard. Your utilitarian you know, optimization is constrained by those property lines. Your utilitarian optimization to deal with an emergency, governments, you know, that's fine, do utilitarianism, but you have a constraint. That constraint is our property lines. You, you can't violate my civil liberties because then you've gone over your property line, right? And that is, a, it all to me, these are, this notion of civil liberties, which is really what they're about, has to be retaught in every generation. And maybe that's one of the first uh, red flags. If they start censoring and violating civil liberties, well, now you know you know what kind of situation uh, you're heading into. Uh, Mark, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I think you're going to stick around. We're going to hop into the smoke-filled room and do a little bonus segment. But first, I know you got a lot of stuff going on. You have courses, you have projects, this sort of thing. So feel free to lay everything out and let everybody know where they can find all your work. Well, I mean, you can, you can, of course, find me on Twitter, Mark Cengizi. Um, I've got a new magazine. I'm trying to take on science and Wired magazine discovered these magazines failed us. They were filled with far left science journalists who were really just peddling uh, panic and government propaganda and big pharma and big tech, tech propaganda. There was no independent thinking. It was the ultimate failure. And it's just called loof wire, like loof, be aloof, which is sort of the, the central thing. Decentralization, avoiding centralized uh, uh, centralization is bad. Be aloof. So it's just loof without the A. Loofwired.com is this sort of magazine that I'm curating. And uh, my Science Moment channel on YouTube, um, I'm you know, approaching 420 episodes. And uh, go find me in those places. Well, Mark Tankeasy, really appreciate your time. We'll have to do it again one of these days. Uh, thank you so much for coming on my show. Maybe I'll see you in real life now that you're a Florida man. Yeah, great to be here. Take care, Mark. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark Tangizi, and the conversation did continue, as it always does, in the smoke-filled room. And I asked Mark a little bit more. I dug deeper onto what you really thought caused all of the uh, the Coovy-Woovy hysteria. How much of it did he see was 
just things sort of playing out as we discussed in the show, or how much did he think was actually pushed from top down to create that hysteria? That's one thing we talked about. And then we take a little bit of a right turn because with Mark's uh, knowledge and his expertise in the field of vision, I had to ask him about the UFO, UAP phenomenon and how he sees that through his scientific lens. So that was a really interesting conversation. You get the smoke-filled room on every single episode, an extra 30 minutes at least when you are a Mark Claire Show premium subscriber. You can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash Show. You can do it over on Subscribestar. You can support me on Rockfin where you get access to a ton of other creators like Jay Dyer, Sam Tripoli, Monica Perez, uh, the whole crew. Everyone you wanted to listen to is over on Rockfin. So you can support me any way you want. Find all the links you need over at markclair.com. That's M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. Friends, it's good to be back. Thank you so much for tuning back in. We're back. We're rolling, baby. I'll see you next week. Until then, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. 